It's cool in here by design. We wanted to give you the feel of a sunrise service. <laughs> or feel like it is to be at the tomb on that early morning. I'm glad by design we have uh, come to this chapter. I've worked trying to get us to this chapter. It's always good to be able to bring uh, a message, you know, with a, with a history behind it, with a flow of where uh, people have been following this, uh, this pilgrimage, this walk as we've been walking through the Gospel of John. Uh, sometimes, you know, for holidays, it seems if we have series going, you have to interrupt, but it's really good not having, not having to interrupt anything, but just being and coming today to John chapter 20 as it's about the resurrection. And for those who are usually here, let me say good morning and welcome to have you here today with us. We, we've been going for several weeks and months through the Gospel of John. And just to give you an understanding, uh, and it's not bad for any of us to be reminded and recall where we're coming from. As I jokingly say, I'm sure many of you forgot what I said last week. So uh, we'll just try to bring people to the place where we're at. Is that the first, This is the book of John. And John's concern in John chapter 20, we're going to see that Jesus, John is concerned about bringing people to come to know who Jesus is, and he's writing these things so we may believe. And the Gospel of John is a book about trials and witnesses and testimonies. Uh, the very beginning chapter, chapter 1, if you go back and read this, the very early verses are an outline for the whole book telling us, John's writing this out to say, this is what this book is about. And it's about being a witness and a testimony to who Jesus is. Jesus being a testimony and a witness to who the Father is, and then, and then also we have that opportunity to be, uh, to be those witnesses as well. And, and that happens, as we see in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost, then that's when he says, when the Spirit comes upon you, then you will be my witnesses. Up until this point... We've all been jurors, and we continue to be a juror until we make a decision of where the evidence lies. And so Jesus is on trial through this whole book, and, there, and maybe for some of you, Jesus is still on the witness stand, and you are still making a decision whether Jesus is the real deal or not, or Jesus is the only way or not, and that there's no other way to be have peace with God, to know with with great conviction and confidence that when you die, you will go have eternal life in Jesus. And that when your loved ones die, they're really not dead, but go on living in Christ. That's the verdict that really has to be made if you understand the evidence. Now, there was a time in my life when I heard all the evidence and just made my own verdict. And I was a juror and made my own decisions, and then really one day it just popped and it came to life that, wow, this is, Jesus is the real one. Even though I've been thinking I've been following Jesus my entire life, he really is not who I thought that he was. In fact, he's much more than that. The first, the first part of John's Gospel, chapters 1 through 12, 
is a book of signs. There are seven signs that John gives us, points out, and he says in the, in the, in the gospel and toward the end, Jesus did lots of other things. But John picks out seven different signs for us to give us an indication of who he's pointing to and why. And Jesus fulfilled those signs and actually expounded upon those signs. And he led us to the point where Jesus then, and chapter 13 to the rest of this book, is the book of glory, where Jesus lays out that ministry and now, verses 13 through the end of this book, actually glorifies the Father, actually then applies this, excuse me, accomplishes all this work, and then says, this is who I really am, and, and I'm going to show you who I am. And so what he is doing is now glorifying the Father by following up everything that he says who he is and what he, he came to do. Last week we looked at the, we've looked at the last couple weeks, if you look to Jesus being delivered over by, from, from um, uh, Judas, Judas over to the high priest Caiaphas, Caiaphas then over to Pilate, and then Pilate hands him over to the people to be crucified. When we saw last week, Jesus is not an innocent bystander. Jesus is not a victim. Jesus is very much in control. He's been telling everyone, regardless of what they heard him or not, that he is going to die. He needs to die because he has a mission. He has a role to play that only he can play, and he needs to leave. And so we see that, as last week, Jesus is pointing out, as the scriptures teach us, that God is sovereignly in control of all these events taking place, even the authority that by which Pilate has for him to deliver them over to the people. Jesus says, none of this would be possible if God hasn't given you this role to play. And so we see Jesus being very much the player and the... And the um, the orchestra leader in all of this historical events that take place. And he continues to do that now in our lives. Even though, as we look, and I've said a few times, this last week of Jesus looks like a train wreck. It looks terrible. It's a terrible event that take place in Jesus' life. He very much is control of it all. As with our own lives, for those of us who love the Lord and understand that when we come Jesus, people who don't know the gospel or people who are peddling the gospel for different reasons, are not telling people the truth, that your life does not get better necessarily when you come to follow Jesus. As Bob said, there are people being persecuted around the globe every day. More people dying for the faith than all that have gone on in the past because of who Jesus is. Yes, there's benefits, and yes, there's wonderful blessings to come down here and understand who Jesus is. It's blessings of understanding we have peace with God. When we find out the gospel means that God is angry at us. God's wrath is waiting upon us and building upon us. But has given us a way out by sending his son who has taken all of God's wrath. Who has died for our sins. Who sheds his blood to forgive us. To give us mercy. To wipe away our sins to give us a whole new birth, a whole new life, and then promise us eternal life. So that you and I know that when we die in our deathbed, we are not going to have to say, Lord, have I done enough? We can say, yes, Jesus has done enough. He's completed it all. That's who I trust. So we get to this point of chapter 20. And remember, Jesus dies. It's the Passover week. 
this uh, time and events of now it's the Sabbath is coming, and this isn't a high Sabbath, it's an important Sabbath because it's within Passover. So all these religious people who have very irreligious motives to kill Jesus are being very religious and making sure that they're kosher, making sure that they're clean and that they're purified and that they're not contaminated and making sure that they do everything that the religion and the law tells them to do while in their hearts they're just murdering Jesus. And so now what's going on is that the, the, uh, the authorities who, who crucified Jesus and wanted Jesus to die because he was a pain in the neck and he was in the way and he just needed to die. The authorities did not want, you know, they did not want to keep Jesus and the other people who were being crucified with Jesus up on the cross because it was Passover. And we saw that by, by God's grace and by God's denying uh, uh, a divine uh, plan, that Jesus is buried in a brand new tomb. He is given a kingly death with all of these, this new tomb with all of uh, Nicodemus and Joseph's uh, uh, strength and power and money that we see that there are 75 pounds of, of uh, perfumes and, and uh, fragrances and spices that Jesus is buried with. 75 pounds is a lot. And so we see this, this kingly burial for this criminal dying on a cross. So they needed to get Jesus off the cross. So they put Jesus in this tomb. Jesus' legs were not broken. Jesus was already dead. We see that there are, we didn't go through all this, but if you go through and if you have a history of being around churches in the past, you can go back through and go through all the Old Testament and you can see where Jesus fulfills. And they've been talking about Jesus for centuries, about all the prophecies that came true, even by the spear in his side. So we, we, we come up to this point here where Jesus is dead, he is buried. The other criminals at that point are not given this kind of burial. And so for them to have a burial, they would be put in a common grave. To their shame, in a common mass grave. Just giving you that perspective so that when we're reading this text, you can understand why some of the characters are responding as they do. And in my planning, as some of you, all of you don't know this, but the people that are doing the bulletins and stuff like this have seen, that my intent was to do chapter 20, verses 1 through, through 31, and then I realized, wow, that's just too big of a chunk. And there's, we're looking at verses eight, 1 through 18 today. So I'll read that for you, and, and we'll go through it and open it up. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom loved Jesus, which is the writer of this gospel, John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. That's why I gave you some of the background. They're thinking that they are trying to, to humiliate Jesus even more by taking him out of this grave and moving him to a common grave. They were in a hurry. The sun was coming down. They needed to get ready. It was going to be the Sabbath. And so that's the commentary I wanted to realize. That's why Mary is upset. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linens, linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, 
And, and the face cloth, which had been around on, on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went to their home, or back to their homes. Mary, but Mary, stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had, been, had, had lain, one on the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not who that was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and she said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet descended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for this account. We're thankful for how John has given us this detailed account and a different perspective from the other brothers who have given us your word, the other gospels. We thank you, Father, that we have this entire book to give us uh, an understanding of how deep and wide and how great and tall and how weighty the love that you have for us, Jesus. That this is just not an event that, again, is a religious day. It is a day where we rejoice because we are told that everything that you said, Jesus, is true. And so we pray that, Father, we would believe in your word today and rejoice and be glad in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, <clears throat> remember that Mary Magdalene, again, that's not her last name. Like Jesus' last name is not Christ. Mary's, Mary was, uh, uh, was from the area of Magdala. So that's why she was called the Magdalene. It was Mary the Magdalene. Okay? That's, that's where she's from. So just don't want you to think that you know, she had a post office box for Mary Magdalene because that's not where she's, that's not her name. Notice it says here, John gives us, and we've noticed this over and over again, John gives us these words and phrases that are very big and powerful, yet they're this big and you just go, oh yeah, and you don't really understand, or you've you got to fit it into the picture of what John is saying. That's why you come to learn the Bible, to, to, you, know, you need a color commentator, a person to fill in the blanks. You know, Some of these things are, are self-evident to read, but when somebody... By God's grace, learning and, and wanting to learn and wanting to teach, to be able to pull all this together and to give you the, the different shades, it's really much more interesting and much better to, to come to this and go, wow, it's really written for me. So now on the first day, Mary came to the tomb while it was still dark. Now we may just say that's an indicator, and it was, it was dark, so you can understand why Mary... 
actions are the way that they are. And it was the still dark as it was night. In chapter 3 for Nicodemus, Jesus, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And we realized that at night meant that that was a kind of a, a metaphor of what was going on spiritually, both in Nicodemus' life and in the life of Israel. Now we're seeing here that it's dark. This is still a very dark period. These people are decimated. These people are heartbroken. They're just defeated people. They're mourning the loss of Jesus. This is a very dark period in their life. So it's dark. This is the attitude. This is the atmosphere. It's not only the temperature. It's not only the time of day, though it was very early. It was dark. This is, this is a big indicator. And it was the first day of the week. Again, first day. You've got to remember, new week. Right? A new week means something new is going to happen. We may read this and say, first day, first day of the week. Okay, good. Thank you for the calendar, John. Thank you for letting me know what it is. But he's just saying, this is the first day. We now know that that week is gone. Right? Last week is gone. We've got a new day, a first day of a new week. Big, big indicator. John's trying to tell us something big is happening. She came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran to Peter and she ran to John, going to them like you would say, like my wife or my kids would say, Dad, the sink is leaking. They're expecting me to do something about it. Well, Mary runs to those guys, inspecting them to do something. So she runs, they ran uh, with Peter and, 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 and John, the disciple, whom they love, and said to them, and she says to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. She goes there. Why, why do they go there? These people are clueless. They're not expecting the tomb to be empty. Why do they go there? Is there a reason why they're there? Why did Mary run? And Mary's not alone. Wasn't a cool thing and a really good thing and a safe thing for a woman to be out this time of night, anywhere from 3 to 6 a.m., dark, not traveling by themselves. And we also learned that Mary had other women with her. What were they going to do? Well, remember the haste of burying Jesus. And remember how important it was to do the burial right. Remember how, when we looked at John's gospel, that when Lazarus died in the tomb, how many days did they mourn? They mourned for three days because they thought that there was any chance of him being alive, that maybe his spirit was still alive and he would come back from the dead. But remember when Jesus waited for three days and waited the fourth day because he wanted to let them know that Lazarus was really dead. And by law and by tradition, it was the fourth day, and so everybody assumed and could tell that Lazarus was really dead. But up until that point, remember, all the people they hired, you hired mourners. You had women you wailing, and you had all this stuff going on. It was quite an event. It was in a quiet time. There was, it was people knew they were mourning. It was a public thing going on. But what the time frame for Jesus, remember, Friday, can't mourn. It's going to be the Passover. So, they were jaded. They were taken away of this time. There was still, what, remember Jesus was in the, in the grave three days. This is the day that they're supposed to go. They were saying, we need to go back and continue what was being done. Jesus was, being, was buried. Remember they went in, they hurried up. We don't believe that Jesus was done. They were done burying Jesus. 
Maybe he, they didn't complete the job. They did it in such haste that they could have left the, the, uh, the 75 pounds of spices there to go back to make sure that they finished what they had to do, not only in preparing Jesus, but also mourning Jesus by law. So this is why they go back. Did you ever think about that? I was wondering, what made them go back? Because it says here, they were clueless. We see that Jesus chastises them for not knowing what's going on, so to speak, in the book of Luke on the road to Emmaus. Well, you guys been under a rock. Don't you know what's going on? They, they said, I mean, that Jesus said that to him. They, they said that to Jesus. Jesus goes, why are you guys so long-faced? He goes, where have you been, buddy? So they're just mournful. They're sad. They're in a dark place, a bad place. Why do they go there? They're going there because they want to continue and finish mourning Jesus. That's why Mary goes with all her entourage, with all the other people. And Mary must have had some sort of ability to do something about it, because what she say? Let me know. Let me know where he is. I'll take his body. Well, where is she? How is she going to do that? She either had power or money or something to be able to do that. Because we've got to find, jokingly, humorously, you may not see this, but you see the response of Peter and Simon. Simon Peter and John. So we see that, that she's concerned and she lets it known several times, they've taken my Lord. They've taken my Lord. They've taken my Lord. She says it over and over again. We don't know where they put him. They're thinking, again, where they've put him. The authorities took Jesus out of the tomb. He doesn't deserve this tomb. He doesn't deserve this kind of burial. He belongs with the common criminals. So they thought that the authorities took Jesus out of the tomb and put him in a common criminal grave. That's why they said, enough humiliation. Where is he? So notice now we have this foot race. Both of them running together, but for some reason, John had on his Nikes. And Peter must have had his sandals on and just didn't run as fast. I don't know why. John was younger, of course. But that doesn't mean he could be necessarily be faster. But they're running. The other disciple outruns Peter, and they reach a tomb. And stooping in to look, he saw the linens lying there, but he did not go in. Who is he talking about? He's talking about John. John stoops in. Notice the, notice the details of what took place. He stooped in. He looked. They were, he said he saw the, clothes, the cloth lying there. Peter would have jumped into a viper's den. Right? That's Peter. Impetuous. He could, you know, put his foot in his mouth how many times? Jumped off the deep, did everything. Just was this person that just would go and do it. He just went right in. Who cares? Forget about being contaminated by a dead person. I don't care. Right? Who cares? I'm throwing all the rules off. I need to be in here. So you can see this kind of personality of Peter. Maybe John was a little bit more pensive, maybe a little bit more methodic. Who knows? But we just know this fits Peter's bill, right? It just fits who Peter's personality is. So he, so he saw the linens lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head. Now realize, John is going to great detail because the word here, lying there, means that they're, in, they're concerned that somebody came in and stole Jesus' body. Right when you, when you went in there, uh, there were uh, these, these expensive spices, great for stealing, Stealing, there were uh, uh, citations, there were uh, penalties that they've read, that you can read, and I haven't read them, but I've been told by scholars that there are, you can read how there's been laws made about plundering grave sites. So they were worried about somebody going there and, and taking 
Jesus out of this very expensive uh, tomb. So they thought that Jesus would have, they stole his body. So you're thinking about stealing his body, you would rip everything off of this person or take everything, right? You either take the body wrapped up, take the, the, all the spices and, and then leave the premises. But it didn't look, this had none, no the markings of, you know, if you're looking for jury, if jury's asking questions or wants evidence, what's, what did the body look like? What did they do? And there was, it was all there. In fact, in fact, it says they were lying there, meaning that it was like Jesus had just, his body had just came, come right out of the, of the burial grave, uh, burial clothes. Just right out like a butterfly, as John Stott says, one of my favorite, would say that it was almost like a butterfly coming out of a chrysalis. It was like him just, his body just coming right out, and all the cloth was laying, all the berry death cloths were right there, just laying right there. He went right through the cloth. Doesn't sound like somebody stole him there. And then, and then you know, they wrapped that, that, the uh, face cloth on it to keep his mouth shut. So they found that that was folded up neatly like the person didn't need it anymore. Now that's different than, than Lazarus, right? Lazarus was dead, but he rose again bodily. And Jesus says, you know, to his grave clothes, take him out of these grave clothes. He still had them all on. So they see this evidence. See, folks, it's a trial. John writes this. He's telling us, we're jurors. We want to know the evidence because we want, he wants us to know. Make a decision. Here's your, you gotta, what kind of verdict you give in Jesus? Do you have enough evidence? So we see the face cloth where, Jesus, where his head, he says, and then uh, not lying uh, with the, the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself, not in a hurry, not in a rush. Nobody stole them. Nobody took them. It looked like it was planned. It looked like it was an event. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and now he saw and believed. Okay, now we're going to say, and other people say, what did he believe? Well, he believed in the resurrection. That's your first impression, correct? Well, what does John say? He gives us these little comments, and what does he say? In verse 9, for as of yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So John could have not, and he is telling us, I believe that Jesus, John did not believe in the resurrection. John believed that Jesus wasn't stolen. John believed that no one, no one came in and took his body, but that it was, he believed that, yeah, Jesus what? Jesus said, I need to ascend, I need to go with the Father, that he may have believed at that time that everybody's all worked up about this, and he believed that Jesus was not stolen, but that he was really done what he said he'd do. He had to go to the Father. Because John gives us that statement. And notice what he says, then the disciples went back to their homes. Now, would you guys go back home? Go back home? After, you, after somebody that you have found who is dead, you don't find him anymore, you find this evidence, and you go back home. Now, who told you to go there? Mary and the other women, correct? The Gospels tell us that. Mary, not alone, but other women went with, went with them to go back there. Now, notice, humorously, I think this is funny, verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside. No consoling of Mary. These guys go home. Leave Mary outside the tomb crying. Don't you think that's kind of strange? 
Oh, come on, Mary, let's go. Well, I'll take care of you. Let's go have a cup of coffee. You know, let's go have breakfast. Let's go buy a walk by the seaside. Let's go do something. But just don't leave Mary weeping out there. These were these men. They walked with Jesus. These, were the, these people had some weight. These were the disciples of Jesus who lived with Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who slept with Jesus, who ate with Jesus. These are the people that had some weight in these people's lives, and these guys go home. Don't you think that's weird? I do. Kind of strange. Leaving her outside, weeping. What a bunch of chumps. I mean, really, you think about this, but you notice when we're sorrow, and again, that's just a joke. I mean, really, you think about people who are grieving. People who are so caught up, it's blinders, right? We just get so sucked up in the drama that we don't know what to do next. Sometimes we forget what we have to do for our jobs, or we forget what we have to do for our families. We had a to-do list, and all of a sudden this all happens, and our life just changed dramatically. So we can understand this. <laughs> Even Jesus says, Jesus says, in that time in the upper room, in chapter uh, 16, he says, to the, he says, you guys are going to, I'm going to have to leave. He says it to him several times. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go away. You guys can't come. I'm leaving. You guys, this is a very sorrowful time for you guys. You guys are going to miss me badly. And then he goes, I'll be back. But he says, you guys are going to be scattered and you guys are going to go back to your own homes. And here we see Jesus, his words coming true. They go back home. They just don't know what to do. And in Luke chapter uh, 27, I believe, I think it's there, 20, 24, chapter 24, verse 12, it says, after these things, Peter goes home wondering. Peter doesn't understand. John believes maybe what's going on to some degree, but we don't know where Peter is. All we know, we're told by Luke, Peter goes home wondering what's going on, leaving Mary and the other women there crying. Okay, so verse, now the reason you can't just take, I don't, just can't think we can just take chapter, uh, verses 1 through 9 by them, and 10 to by themselves, because Mary's so much a part of the first 8, 9 verses, we've got to carry her through. She's part of the, she's part of the story in the Gospel of John. Because she plays a part that leads us to the rest of this chapter, where we have a contrast between who? Mary and Thomas, who we're going to talk about next week. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb as she wept, she stooped, and then she went in. Now, she couldn't see what was going on before because it was dark. She was afraid. She didn't go in. But now she goes into the tomb to see for herself. And she saw two angels in white. And we read in the Gospels that, you know, they were radiant and white and you know, uh, there's, you know, talking to who Mary was and, 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 and sitting, sitting on uh, where the body of Jesus lay, one at the head and one at the foot. Now, some people, feet, some people think that this is a sign of the kingly, of uh, Jesus now being the judge and the ruler and the king at the mercy seat where the cherubim sit. Some people are saying that that may be pointing to this. I'm not saying, but it's very possible. But showing there where Jesus was, now two angels are there. Now she says to them, excuse me, they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? This is counterintuitive, woman. He's gone. Why are you crying? 
Why are you crying for Jesus? You shouldn't be crying for Jesus. Jesus told you everything that needed to happen. What are you crying for? This is neither the time or the place to be weeping for Jesus. She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Now I would have said, wow, who are you guys? Right? How often do you see an angel? Especially when you see an angel, you know that God's intervening. It's divine. When we've seen angels means that God's involved in this, right? When we see angels around, we know that God's very much a purpose of all this. He's, he's a major player in this. He wants us to get some something. So we're going like, wow, I've never seen one like you before. I mean, she's so, she's so in the gloom. She's so depressed. She's so focused on Jesus, which is a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. Don't you think so? I mean, she loved Jesus that much that she was so concerned about him. His body, his welfare, everything about him. She just loved, because don't forget, Jesus cast out demons from her life. I mean, her life was hell. Her life was awful. She changed his, her life tremendously. She meant so much to him. But yet to just look at these angels and just say, Man, she just had that one mantra. Where is he? What did you do with him? Not with my Jesus. What did you do with him? So, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that was Jesus. And we're told, we don't really know. I mean, there's, we see this before. There were times when Jesus was unrecognizable when in his glorified body. You've got to realize, this, this, is, this is new. It's the first day of the week. This is something that's never happened before. This is a new work. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to give us eternal life. He came to take away our sins. He came to take away this body of death to give us a whole new body. He gave us new clothes to wear, a new body to wear. Not that we would die and be naked, but we would die having this new body. And Jesus now is the firstborn of all creation. And so he now has this new body no one else has ever had before. So how do we know what it looks like? If it's perfect, as I've said before, and others have said, you know, I, my, I don't know what perfection looks like. My eyes have never seen perfection. So how do we know? We wouldn't recognize him either. But Jesus and it tells us that God opens their eyes. God kept them, and Luke, God kept them from seeing who Jesus was, and then all of a sudden... Oh, in, the, in Luke, when they were walking on the road and with those two guys, and, and he says, all of a sudden, our eyes were open, and we saw it was Jesus. Now, she doesn't know it's Jesus. She said, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping, and whom are you seeking? Now, questions are good things, right, folks? All right, have you heard me say this? Questions are good things. You always ask people questions when it comes to other things in life. We need to ask people questions about their faith. When they, when they define terms, ask them, what do they mean? When they say this, then can you define me? What, who is Jesus? Or what is the Bible? Or what do you think this is? And what do you think that means? And how do you know this stuff? Not because you're their judge and jury, but the fact is, is you, want them, you want to understand where they're coming from, so maybe they have articulated it for the first time or can't articulate what they believe in. They just have a gut feeling that this is the way it is. They never really thought about it. They just believe what they think. They have no evidence for it. So he answers these questions. He says to her, woman, who, who are you looking for? 
Why, why are you weeping? What are you looking for? Notice these questions. Jesus wants people to know why they're looking for him. We have to ask yourself here, what are you here today for? Why are you here? Who are you looking for? You've heard me say many times, is the Jesus that is in your life right now and the Jesus that you've created, is he found in this book? If he's not, then it's not Jesus you're looking for. And so this is who Jesus is going to marry. Mary, who are you looking for? You know who I am. I spent time with you. I love you. You know everything. I spent a lot of time with you. You understand me. You're here. Die. You're here. You saw me die. You saw these things about me. You know some things about me intimately. But he asked her because even we as God's people, even people who have been in church their whole lives, need to ask ourselves a question, who is Jesus to us? What is the gospel? You can sit in your church your entire life. And not be able to answer the Bible questions or what the gospel is any better than somebody who's never been in church. Because they don't know the truth. They've created the gospel. They created God. They created Jesus. They created the Bible. And so Jesus is saying, just like, who are you looking for? Who did you come to see? We come here to see Jesus. Well, Jesus said, who did you, who, you see me, who did you come into the wilderness to find? Who did you come to look for? You're looking for this guy. Well, here I am. Who are you looking for? So when we're looking for the truth, when we're looking for God, when we're looking for Jesus, who are you looking for? Like I've asked my Jewish friend, and I've told you this before, well, not my friend, my working acquaintance, which I haven't seen in years, ever since I've asked him all these questions. You're a Jew. You're waiting for the Messiah. Who are you looking for? What does he look like? How do you know it's going to be him? Didn't have a clue. An important person like the Messiah coming didn't have a clue what he was looking for. So it's not that you're trying to be judgmental. It's not that you're trying to put people down. You're really sincere. You want people to know the truth because the truth is going to set you free. Jesus is the truth. He is the way, he's the life. He's everything that we need. He's all the questions that we have plaguing us in our entire life. He's the only answer. So Jesus says, whom are you looking for? And so, so she thinks, because this is a cool tomb, this is a great tomb, this is a, you know, this is in a garden, this is a rich person's tomb, that there's a gardener taking care of this tomb. So she assumes that this guy has some weight, he must work for the person. So she says to him, what did you do with his body? What did you do with him? What did you pay him? Did you get paid to put him in a common grave? What did you do with him? Jesus says to her, Mary, now, have you ever heard Jesus call your name? If you're a believer in Christ, you've had to have hear Jesus call you by name. I knew that Jesus, it was when it came so real to me that I just knew that he was calling me to be, to be his follower, to be his, his brother in the Lord, to be his brother and to be his, his, his sheep. I mean, I played church my, so many years of my life, but when I read, started reading the Bible and it came to the day when Jesus wooed me enough and showed me enough, not enough, but to where he wanted me to be, that I would come, he knew exactly where to put, put me and exactly what to say to me to get me to come to know him because he knows me. And he has allowed all these things to take place in my life to the day that I was ready to accept him. I, he, he called me by name, and, 
It says in John chapter 12, uh, 10 of God, John's Gospel, chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. They know I call them by name. He is the shepherd here to Mary now. He is actually playing this out. He calls her by name, and he says, Mary. And boy, what does Jesus say? My sheep know my voice. Without a shadow of a doubt, she didn't recognize who he was. But man, her heart just melted because it's Jesus. So she cries out this intimate term, this Ramboni, my teacher. It's much more personal than we can even articulate what she is saying here. It's deep in her heart that this is Jesus. This is when she's, she's, he's dead. Now he's alive. So can you understand her response is to run after him and tackle him? Right? It's him. He's dead. He's not dead. Here he is. My goodness, anyone that you love who had come back to life, you wouldn't go and just kiss them and hug them and embrace them and just want to smell them and taste them and everything you could? We can't fault Mary. I mean, this is amazing. This is a common human response. Yet, Jesus knows who Mary is, and so Jesus treats Mary the best way Mary needs to be treated. In contrast to Thomas, right? We know the story of Thomas. Touch me. Jesus says to Mary, don't cling to me. She's not saying don't touch me, G. Don't touch me, Mary. He didn't say that. He says don't cling to me. We read in the other Gospels that other, the other women embrace Jesus, and Jesus says don't be afraid. He didn't chastise them. In a way, he gets Mary just like Mary, his mother, at that wedding. He calls her woman. Because he's, he's in another relationship now. His relationship has changed with Mary. Mary has to come to that. I'm not the same Jesus that you knew. I'm a better Jesus. There was nothing wrong with the first Jesus. He is just... <laughs> now finished his task. He has now moved to that place where we're longing to go to, which is what he died for. He is now truly the Redeemer. He is now truly the Savior. When he was born and lived, he didn't die yet, so he could not be the Redeemer nor the Savior, though that's what his role was going to be. So she clings to him, and he says, don't cling to me, Mary. Why? Because this isn't the best you're going to get. You see how he interprets that for her. He does not want, Jesus does not want his relationship to be with Mary on her terms. It has to be on his terms. That's the hard place we come to, folks. God wants a relationship, but it's according to his terms, not our terms. We've lived our lives according to our terms. Until we come to Jesus, we realize we've got to throw that all thing out, and now it's on according to his terms. Now, we don't live that out perfectly because we're still sinners. What she's saying, he's saying to Mary here, Mary, it's on my terms. He goes, I've not ascended to the Father yet, he said. What does he mean by that? John chapter 14, John chapter 16, I'm going away. I'm preparing a place for you. I must go. No, we want you, Jesus. We don't want you to die, Jesus. It's so much better having you, Jesus, with us all the time. Remember we went through that whole thing, Peter, Tom, all, Tom, all those people were going... No, Jesus, we don't want you to die. We want you with us all the time. We don't want you to die. No, it's better that I die because you're going to get a better me. You aren't going to get everything you got right now 
unless I go, unless I go and prepare a place for you, unless I go to be with the Father, I'm going to go someplace you can't go, but I'm going to come back with, for you, and then I'm going to take you with me. He is saying, Mary, I need to go. I have not yet sent to the Father. But notice the terms now he gives to Mary that has never been given before. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet, not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers, my brethren. He's never used that term before. It's always been servants and disciples. This is the first time that Jesus calls the twelve his brothers. Why? Because as he told Mary, it's a whole new day. It's a whole new relationship. Now, we're brothers. Jesus says, I, do not, I am not ashamed to call them my brothers and sisters, my brethren. Because it says there in verse 18, Mary went and announced to the disciples. You draw an arrow from, from um, my brothers to the disciples. You have to because they're the same, one and the same. Jesus, uh, Mary runs to the disciples because she knew exactly who he was talking about. But notice now the relationship in terms that Jesus has never used before this. He says, I am ascending to my, to my father, and now he says, it's to your father. No time anywhere else has it been, it's been my father, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm going to the father, I'm here to glorify my father, I'm here to do this for my father, to the father. Now he says in his death and his ascension is that now the relationship, remember we talked about this last week about this whole new family when Jesus hands goes to Mary and he says, Mary, behold the son, and he goes to John, and John says, behold your mother, this whole new family, this whole new family in Christ, this whole new community, it's much thicker than blood. Because there is no marriage in heaven. We're not a family in heaven. When we get to heaven, we are now the body of Christ. We are the family of God. We are now brothers and sisters. When we get to heaven, it is thicker. It is much deeper because of who Christ is than any relationship on earth. And so Jesus is saying to Mary, this is, I am now going to my father. And you know what, Mary? In my high priestly prayer, I said, Father, make them one as we are one. That's where Jesus is now telling Mary, it's all coming to pass. This is where it's all happening. It is all going to happen and complete. And my relationship with you is going to be so much better. In fact, it is. And notice he says, go and tell your father uh, to my father and your father, and now he says, to my God and your God. You see, the relationship has totally changed. It is now so intertwined with one another because of who Jesus is. He just didn't wipe away our sins. He gave us a whole new family. Remember John chapter, turn with me to the beginning of John, cha John chapter 1. Just to get that understanding again, when John played this out in the prologue of John's gospel, John chapter 1. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is what he is saying. John is laying this out for him to, to, to Mary. Mary, I got to go. I got to go. Don't cling to me. You can't have me. You don't want me like this. I need to ascend in heaven. I need to sit at the right hand of the Father. 
Why? Because this is where Jesus is interceding for us. This is where Jesus is sitting at the right throne, of the throne and right hand of God the Father. He is the king of the universe, now enthroned, now exalted. That's where he came to die and, I mean, came to live and die for us so he could be there so you and I can have a relationship with one another that was never possible before. That's when we marry our relationship with another believer is not just husband and wife, it is brother and sister. Makes it all different. Meaning that if there's no marriage in heaven, and if Susie was a believer and I wasn't, she won't see me again. But because we're brothers and sisters, we will. And that's why a relationship with the church is so different. As painful as it has been in this church and other churches, it still doesn't negate what Jesus has said and done. We are brothers and sisters. Jesus is our elder brother. We are in a relationship. We could not call God our father. We can't pray our father until Jesus says to Mary, let go, I need to go. So that's how important this day is. This, we have a whole new family. We have a whole new relationship. And the relationship that we want to have with the father or be able to call him Father, would not happen unless this all took place. That's why we rejoice. That's why we're happy. That's why it's not only about the tomb being empty. If the tomb is empty, maybe they did steal his body. But it wasn't that it's empty, it's that it was raised from the dead. It's that now you and I, who are struggling, younger people not so much, <laughs> with our bodies and our minds, and some of you who are older than us are struggling with everything as well and more to intensity because you know that gravity starts pulling more and more every day. That we don't have to think and wait and realize that in the end, it's a wishful thought that we've done enough. A wishful thought to think that it's God's job to be merciful. I haven't been that bad. So that when I die, I'm completely assured because of this event and the days that preceded this of him dying on the cross, of being the sacrificial lamb of God, his blood shed, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is now telling Mary, Mary, I need to go. You can't have the same relationship. Just wait. Just wait. Wait till you see what's going to happen. Just, I need to go. You can't love me like you loved me before. You're going to love me even more. So that's where that confusing statement is about don't cling to me. People are saying, it's, you know, you can, you can read pages and pages of what people interpret about. Don't touch me, don't do this, don't do that. He's just saying, Mary, don't cling to me. You can't love me like you used to. You're going to love me better. Wait till you find out what I really have for you. And until you come to understand who Jesus is, and until you read this Bible and realize that Jesus is much better than what you've ever expected which is where I came to, following Jesus, calling myself a Christian for all those years, thinking that I was in like Flint, that I wasn't as bad as other people, that I had been a religious person my entire life. Then coming to find out that, wow, he's that much better. He is much more packed. This is how important it is for us to understand who are you seeking? Who are you saying you want to follow? Who is Jesus? We need to make sure that these are all biblical. That you can go in here and find out everything about Jesus and then realize that's who you love. Not the one that we create. Because he is the one who's going to let us down. 
He's the one who's going to fail us, not the one who we're reading about here. So ask yourself that question, and you can say it with joy. Who are you seeking? I'm seeking Jesus of the Bible. I'm seeking Jesus who died for me. I'm seeking that Jesus is the one that pleased the Father, who caused to give me new life, who desires to have a relationship with a scum like me. A person whose heart is bent toward evil. Even though my heart is changed by God's grace, I am, as the song says, I am prone to wander from the God that I love. But inside of me now lives a new person, a new man. As Jesus says, as, as Paul writes to us in Corinthians, he says, Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation. I used to look at Jesus from the flesh. He says, not anymore. And now because Jesus changed in your life, now I look at you differently. I look at the world differently. I look at my family differently. Maybe some days they don't think so. I look at everything differently because God has changed my eyes to see who he is and who he is in my life and what he's done for me. That changes everything. That's why it's so important to understand who he is. What is the gospel? So I pray that you ask yourselves that question and you have the biblical answer for it. It's all about this Jesus who died for me, who gave his life for me, who took my sin and gave me his righteousness. That's a great gift. Terrible exchange on his part. But the transaction is going on right here. This is where the transaction takes place. It's a whole new beginning. So I hope and pray that you rejoice in that. Not because of any other reason for Easter. Other than what we've been talking about here. And there's more. So I hope you come back and find the rest of the story. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you again for opening our eyes to be able to allow us to look at this text and read it and go, wow, I know this story. And then, Lord, to allow us today to just enjoy being bathed by this story with, its, with uh, God, John detailing for us and outlining for us and, and presenting to us these little pithy statements and these, these statements that are very full. But most of all, Lord, we're thankful that the perspective that John wrote this was for us to believe. Believe in who this Jesus is. Father, I pray for those who are here today that do not know who this Jesus is. I pray that they ask questions about who they are and who do they follow and who are they looking for and where is this Jesus that they are creating who they are hoping will follow through with the promises that they've put in his mouth. Lord, I pray that not by my persuasion, not by this time, but by your spirit and by your power, you will convince them of the truth, that you will take them off of the jury stand and now make them witnesses of this truth. And Lord, for those of us who understand, as Bob said, the depth of our sin. We understand face-to-face -face who we are, and we are not happy about who we are, but we are joyful and rejoicing in the fact of who we are in you. We now have a whole new way to live a life, to look at life. We have a whole new way to come to you. If we desire to follow you, it has to be through you, Jesus. 
And we rejoice knowing that it is nothing we have done. It is not how hard we work. It is not how well we've done in our exams. It is not how profitable we are. It is not how well we've raised. It is not how well we've married. It is not how well we've managed. It's about how great you are. And how you have had pity upon a merciful, on a, a person who had no mercy for you. Who had no love for you. Yet you loved me and turned your eyes and face toward me so that I would be attracted to you. Lord, I thank you for it. And I pray that, Jesus, you would do that here today. Not for my sake, not for the sake of Hope Church, but because of your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.